Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends, taste, brands, and products. to episode 26 at the department. Uh, We're going back in time to the 2000s again. Um, This week is our second episode in the series featuring what we like to consider the terrible 2000s. And Amanda and I were talking a little bit before this and we were like, no, this is actually the the most terrible of the 2000s. It's even more terrible than last week. I know. I mean, I'm I'm sure as we dig more and more into the 2000s, even more terrible things are going to come up. And I think... We need to put a pin in an idea that when we're done, we decide which was the worst, most terrible part of the 2000s. This was like, I feel like the sub basement. Yeah. Or like maybe like. (laughs) You know, I don't usually like get angry when I'm working on an episode of the department, but I was getting really riled up today. (laughs) Oh, I can't imagine. I was actually laughing hysterically because I was looking at <laughs> things we were, that pe- that people were wearing oh. and I was just like I forgot about this yeah and and Amanda and I were also talking you know this so anyway last week we reminisced about the celebutants the rise of reality tv which we will reference again because that was so so important and you know um neil did bring up the the idea that reality tv became really big because of the um the writer's strike was happening oh yeah yeah this was like the perfect you know band-aid on top of that i totally forgot about that and that's one of the reasons why it blew up and it was just so huge um same were the the gross gossip blogs and all the rags um and then you know the trends around juicy couture uggs that was all last week um, and so this week we are going to uncover some slightly different but vaguely overlapping territory and discuss, um, you know, raunch culture and then, you know, some like blue collar tattoo bling um, brands, trends, <laughs> um, really kind of the garishness and grotesqueness. Of, <laughs> you know, we hadn't really talked this week. And um, I I spent you know pretty much every evening working on my piece, and there it was like just it, it was just scratching at the bottom of barrels trying to find any sort of information about a lot of this this culture and trends, and like it's like it's been wiped from existence. It's really hard it's to find information. Really crazy because the internet existed at this time, yes. and like I. My technique for the department is I usually read a ton of stuff throughout the week mm-hmm. that relates to what I'm going to talk about. And then like as the week progresses, I start to build like the story I'm going to tell in my mind and then I sit down and write it out. And early this week, I was like, um, yeah, I'm running into some problems here because yeah. like there are no articles to read yeah. about this. It's so bizarre. Yeah, nobody nobody wants to talk about it. And, you know, there's images and obviously, when you're trying to follow trends, you're, you're trying to pick up on, you know, where it came from yeah. and, you know, 
and why it came there and, you know, what it meant for society. <laughs> and you're just like, why did affliction teas become so oh, I, I know, I know, I know. So, yeah, so join us on a journey. If you hear something that we're talking about today that we totally missed because mm-hmm. we've both faced a lot of challenges here, please send us an email, a DM, leave us a phone message, something. Mm-hmm. Tell us what we missed. Well, call us on our hotline, yes. which is 717-925-7417, which you can also access on our, our website and on our Instagram. And we have a couple messages. Uh, maybe we'll share some of them next week. It's just you know, there's just so much to talk about. We have to figure it out. We have to pencil it in, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we are getting them though. Yes, yeah, so we're getting them. We're listening to them. We love them. And you know what's really hot right now, Amanda? <laughs> what? Our Instagram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we share tons of content, details, inside jokes. Um, a lot of these images that we see while we are doing our research look up on our stories or, you know, um, on the, the actual, you know, Insta- Instagram. Um, so you can find us at underscore the underscore department. Uh, we also have, like I said, a great website um, that you can reference a lot of our show notes. It's the department.world. Uh, we also put a lot of images and all of these fun things um, that we kind of develop uh, as, as we go through this process. Um, and if you were enjoying the show, it always helps uh, if you leave us a comment or a star rating review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Or just actually just follow us on your preferred podcast streaming service so you can get updates on our latest drops. Um, And one last thing, we do have to mention a disclaimer or in a reminder, you know, uh, much like we talked about on our last episode, Amanda and I were considered hipsters in this time period. Um, So this episode will reflect the trends that we knew about, but it wasn't something that we actually participated in. We did give it some side eye. That's why it was also kind of difficult to research all of it because it was something that was on our periphery. Some of the stuff I'm going to talk about today was on my periphery and oh. some of it I inexplicably loved so much. So we'll oh, get there. Great. great. <laughs> I don't even know what you're going to talk about, so I'm super excited. <laughs> You'll be able to tell which part I loved and which part made me angry. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, before we jump in – um. I just wanted to ask you, Amanda, you know, what do you think will happen after Bernie's look debuted at the inauguration? (laughs) Well, I mean, one, I think it says a lot about dressing practically when it's cold outside. Mm -hmm. I actually, I thought it was kind of cool because while, I mean, I watched the inauguration, I cried multiple times. It was a really big day. And I think Mm -hmm. I see why it had to happen. But there was this part of me that was like, why are we doing all this brouhaha and why are all these people wearing all these crazy expensive gowns and whatnot mm-hmm. when like people are literally starving, mm-hmm. dying, and being evicted? Like it was – there was a disconnect and I was like, Bernie, I felt like was there oh, representing yeah. the rest of us who were like, I don't know. I'm kind of having a tough time right now. But Just uh, keep it casual. Just like, keep it casual. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And be warm. You know, and that day – I mean, you don't know this because you are in LA where it's been really warm, but it was really cold that day in this part of the country. Yeah, it was like windy, but like mm-hmm. sunny. So, you know, that means it was really cold. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can appreciate that. I will say one thing that kind of, you know, I have a lot of feelings about 
one-off t-shirts and sweatshirts that are like ostensibly a fundraiser, right? Yeah. Bernie is selling t-shirts and sweatshirts on his site with hit with that photo of him on it. Oh, really? And the money benefits Meals on Wheels. That's mm. great, but mm-hmm. I just don't want people to buy one-off things like that because yeah. and how long are you going to wear it? Then it goes in the drawer with your feminist tee. It goes yeah. right in the drawer. Yeah, that's a sleepy shirt and you're in a, a paint the house shirt. You yes, know? exactly. And I hate that. Did you know that every year more than two billion t-shirts are bought in the world? We wow. have too many. Too many t-shirts. Yeah. Too many t-shirts. Well. Uh, what do you think is happening in the handmade mitten industry? I mean, <laughs> must be experiencing an unprecedented amount of demand after Bernie showed up with that like, <laughs> post office look. I know. I mean, those I mean, Urban's got to be making them right now. It's just, I think a mitten is a bold look because, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm sure it's been a long time since you've had to wear some gloves or mittens, Kim. But like, mm-hmm. you can't do shit with a pair of mittens. And, uh, you know, I I don't want to brag, but one of the categories I've bought during my career is gloves. Mm. And mittens were one of those things that we would buy just like a dropper full of because people like to give them as Christmas gifts. But like people don't actually buy and wear mittens. They wear gloves. And so I thought that was a bold look. (laughs) Yeah, it is a bold look. And I feel like it was made out of like recycled material. Mm -hmm. It's a local person. I'm sure Etsy has just blown up. And like I said, I think I'm sure that, you know, Urban will come up with their own variation. Maybe they'll be that one that like flips, like that convertible one. That, that <laughs> those, those were strong, yeah. very strong, year after year after year. <laughs> because you're not able to do something with your phone, you know, mittens. Yeah, yeah. But I will say like it is true that mittens are warmer. I mean, of course, Bernie's not thinking about it. I feel like Bernie probably has a flip phone first off, yeah. you know, and he's not like posting to Instagram and all of that he's stuff. Got, like, he's got like a carrier pigeon, just like <laughs> yeah. a real – Exactly. So he can wear mittens and still live life to its fullest. Unlike the rest of us who are like, ah, I have to post, send this Snapchat or whatever. All right. Well, are you ready to get into it, Amanda? Let's get into it. We have a lot to talk about. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to start talking a little bit about blue collar to bling culture. Um, This starts really with Christian Audiger, who was a legend. Um, he is essentially the man behind two of the trendiest, tackiest, most 2000 garishly maximal brands of the aughts. I feel Both. like you're being charitable here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it definitely was a movement. Um, Von Dutch and Ed Hardy. <laughs> so he figured out early on how to play the game with celebrities and knew that the American consumer at this time liked it logocentric, conspicuous consumption and ironic. You know, he is, he's, he's French. Um, so he came over here in, you know, the 2000s and just kind of changed the game in Los Angeles. Um, he is basically a French born designer and mega marketer. His first hit was Von Dutch, which he was hired to join a few years into the brand's existence. Uh, I assume you all remember Von Dutch. Um, Kylie Jenner tried to kind of bring it back a little bit in 2016, or they just paid her a ton of money. Uh, I don't think, I think it flared, but then kind of flared out again. I mean, I think they pushed it really hard. So mm-hmm. I have a tiny story about Von Dutch in 2016, okay. which is um, at that point I was working for a retailer that was technically for women, but 
we bought from a lot of men's lines. And so in downtown LA, uh, there's one floor of the California Market Center that is all menswear. And so I would go there to see different vendors. Like that's where our friend Hayden's showroom is, for yeah. example. And uh, Hayden, who you might remember, we talked about last episode, One Fear Factor. And uh, there's this showroom there, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's the craziest place on earth because they will they'll accept they'll represent any brand they charge the brand a fee to be in the showroom um so sometimes they'll only have a brand for like six months and then it either flops or they realize that you know there is actually like something to sell there and that brand will go to a real showroom like this is a showroom in and all the people who work there are like simultaneously desperate and like really bad at their jobs like one time I saw them at a, a trade show and I was like, oh, hey, like I actually do for the first time ever, like the sunglass line you're carrying. <laughs> I get all the notes from them. They never follow up. I email them. They never answer. Oh, Soon they don't have nice. the line. I mean, they're just a mess. And so they, I would do everything I could to avoid walking by that showroom because they will find you. They will yes. follow you to the bathroom <laughs> and make you come in. And guess what? <laughs> Right, yeah. So I'm there. To, I'm there to see Hayden, and I was going to go see Herschel, some other people, and I accidentally, without thinking, because I was on the phone, walked by oh. their showroom. So they come out, they find me, they take me, and they're like, "Guess what? They set up. They set a trap." That's what I felt like. I felt like they planned for someone to call me. They were waiting. They knew they were watching from the street below. I don't know. Anyway, uh, they were like, "We have Von Dutch now," and I was like, "What?" And they're like, "Yeah." It's going to be massive. It's going to be the biggest brand we've ever had. And I immediately was like, okay, well, like, I don't know who's licensing Von Dutch right yeah. now, but anyone <laughs> who would work through this showroom, I didn't say this, but I'm thinking right. this. Anyone who would work through this, like, Kukamaru, I would say showroom in quotes, mm -hmm. uh, they're not about to make a huge comeback. Right. <laughs> and, and Amanda, Amanda's talking about wholesale showrooms also. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Right. They're, they're not they're not like investing in like the the, the top tier, you know, Nordstrom buyer no. uh showroom, no. you know, it's <laughs> it's definitely bottom of the barrel. Yeah, yeah. And they would always actually at a lot of the men's trade shows that I would go to, they would end up having a pretty big booth only because they would seriously have like 50 brands in there and they would all be super random. And uh they made a big show of Von Dutch at the next trade show, and I didn't see anyone in the booth shopping it. I mean, it, it's a tough sell, you know? I think because it's so connected to all the other horrible things we're going to talk about today. So obviously, you know, um, Von Dutch, if you don't know, it was adorned by all the glitterati back in the early aughts. Um, it really it ignited in – 2003 and then it hit its max velocity over 10 months and then just flamed out in 2004 uh which actually goes to show how quickly <laughs> trends were moving then which is kind of funny you know all mm -hmm. the, all that is basically through gossip and celebrity magazines reality tv shows, online blogs oh yeah you know it, we didn't have an Instagram, so it was mm -hmm. just kind of it was interesting to see how see how how that cycle was actually really quick. Um, so a bit of backstory on Von Dutch for a little bit of context here. Kenneth Hughes is considered the father of the 1960s custom car. And that's with, two, that's with a K. Custom K uh, and the car K craze. That okay, okay. Just like Kim Kardashian. Exactly. <laughs> really. Um, and, and he set up his first 
pinstriping studio in 1951. So he developed this technique called pinstriping, which is the freehand painting of fine lines in symmetrical motifs. Uh, So Hughes painted flames that became the signature of this uniquely Southern California car subculture. So these pinstripes were a distinctive decorative decorative feature of the 1950s bodywork in the USA and over time have become a traditional ingredient of custom culture, still with a K. Um, Tall, blonde, and headstrong, he gave himself the moniker Von Dutch in reference to the expression stubborn as a Dutchman. He seemed like a real treat as of a person as well. Um, it was noted that he was a, a known racist and neo-Nazi. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this all adds up. <laughs> yeah, um, like kind of a piece of work, um, kind of, you know, not the most pleasant person to be around. But anyway, he was met with immediate success, immediate success with his venture. Von Dutch became the go-to guy for customizing motorbikes and automobiles. Some clients even shipped vehicles from New York City to be customized with a K. <laughs> I mean, it gives you, it just gives you context. Um, yeah, yeah. After his death in ni- the 1990s, his daughters sold the Von Dutch name to two LA entrepreneurs, hoping to open a business for hot rod enthusiasts. So Von Dutch embra- embraced this custom culture rockabilly trend and in the 1990s launched with greaser style jeans, t-shirts, and motorcycle jackets, as well as the infamous trucker hat that was inspired by the car and auto shops. Uh, in 2000, they opened the first store on Melrose, but it wasn't until 2002 when they hired designer Christian Audiger, who had a background working at Diesel and American Eagle, did the brand actually take off. So Audiger is quoted as saying in 2008, I met Britney Spears on the street. She wore the first Von Dutch baseball cap. Three days later, I met Justin Timberlake in a nightclub and gave him a cap to wear too. And this was at the time when they were dating. Um, So Mm. later they split up and they were featured on the cover of People magazine wearing both hats. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so essentially they were just walking billboards getting chased by paparazzi at this really pivotal time in their storylines. Um, and the brand just blew up quite immediately after that. In 2003, Justin Timberlake wore the Von Dutch trucker to Grammy night parties. Fred Durst, Ashton Kutcher, oh, <laughs> and other Hollywood types started following suit. You know, follow whatever Justin's doing. And pretty soon, mm-hmm. the trucker hat had become a kind of anti-status symbol. Um, or, you know, at prices from $42 to $125, maybe a faux anti-status symbol. So by 2014, uh, after being paraded around on all the celebrities and paparazzi shots and on Paris Hilton in The Simple Life, the brand basically just hit mainstream. So it tri- took roughly, like I said, 10 months for this all to happen with archaic cell phones, glossy mags, and Friendster. <laughs> The LA Times reported back in 2004, each design is uh, is limited to a run of 1,000 units, which helps fuel the demand. They call it the Beanie Baby Factor. So on mm. eBay last year, which was 2003, more than 20 Von Dutch hats sold for $900 plus. <laughs> 
Can you believe? Okay, first, I had to like think about what you just said. And I first, I thought you really meant last year, 2020. And I was like, I need to meet those people. (laughs) But okay, 2003 makes a lot more sense. That's a lot of money, though, because those hats were like, plastic you know absolutely i mean they were like 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 i said it was like there were 75 to 125 dollars back then yeah that's like like designer price point for a hat yeah yeah we sold them at urban outfitters and we sold tons of them i bet tons to like teenage girls oh my god of course because they're they're watching the reality tv shows Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm wearing it. So LA Times reported that um, although the trucker hats were the most visible of Von Dutch's products, the company did more sales volume in jeans, which cost $145 to $320. Uh, the, you know, I, I had no idea. The company's sales went from about $1 million in 2001 to roughly $33 million in 2003. Um, so, I, you know... I was trying to do a lot of exploration on, you know, why the Von Dutch kind of really checked all the the boxes and blew up, you know, and it was essentially derived from the 1990s insane swing dance craze that we all. <gasps> I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh. Where that rockabilly swing dance thing kind of really blossomed um yeah and then there was this massive embracement of blue collar iconography and essentially class appropriation like pbr which i think we'll be getting into pbr in the next episode um and then the white white tank top or what they called the wife beater back then um Mm -hmm. tattoos and then the trucker hat and those kind of all came out of this strange you know (laughs) this strange time period um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, so the trucker hat was pulled from rural and mechanic shops. They were originally given away at truck stops or feed shops to farmers and mechanics to advertise their products. So John Deere put a lot of marketing dollars towards these guys back in the day. But other brands like Coca-Cola and feed companies also used the hats as like a marketing vehicle. They were picked up by the American youth subcultures around the 2000s, uh, maybe a little bit b- before. Um, those details are super, super vague and hard to find. Um, but the cool hip hop and skater crowd started sporting them as an ironic statement because of the blue collar association mm. and generally older, quote unquote, dad demographic. Um, and really irony is the key word here, because as we get into hipsters, the trend was all based on irony. You know, mm-hmm. low fashion is high fashion. Poor is rich. Which is something that the trend that that's like trendy to this day, you know, the cult of ugly shoes and normcore are all subversions of the ironic style. Uh, Mar- Market Watch explains that ironic consumption as using a product while attempting to signal an identity trait or belief that is opposite from the perceived conventional meaning of the product. So, you know, Paris Hilton, one of the richest women in the world wearing a trucker hat, albeit, you know, a designer one, is still a socialite wearing a truck stop paraphernalia, you know. And I knew a lot of hipsters who wore trucker hats, not Von Dutch, because that was too mainstream. They would wear the authentic ones Mm -hmm. because hipsters embrace authenticity, but also irony. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you know any Von Dutch wearers, Amanda? No. I mean, like... 
yes, we were selling a ton of those at Urban, but like none of us would that have worn one. That was like posers, yes. essentially. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Dustin, my husband, is still a trucker hat guy. He collects vintage ones and is constantly wearing one, but I don't think I could get him into a Von Dutch. No. It's just like that one's never coming back. And it's, it's interesting like talking about Von Dutch trying to make a comeback and it kind of fizzling out. And I wonder – if it's because more people know about this, the racist roots mm. of Von Dutch. It's possible. If they don't, they should probably find out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that would be, that would be like some sort of call out culture. And I think, you know, pe- people are a lot more informed these days and it's not, um, un, it's, it's not hard to find, to know that he mm-hmm. is, you know, he has all these terrible beliefs. So, you know, yeah. that's not hidden anywhere. And I think that that would will always taint that brand. I'd say just start a different brand and make it cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so Adige went on uh, out on his own in 2004 and started his own California tattoo artist inspired line called Ed Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before you ask me, I've never owned anything Ed Hardy and I don't know anyone personally who has, but I feel like I lived in this bubble where Ed Hardy was not relevant. It was like something I would see on TV or like on Britney Spears or something. But I remember going to LA on a buying trip. Mm -hmm. This is like, you know, when I was living in Philadelphia. And I want to say it was probably 2006, 2007. And we went over to Melrose, like to the swap meet there. And Kim, in in a two block span, there were five Ed Hardy stores. Explain that to me. I know. It's like I know. Starbucks. Them, yeah, it was like Starbucks, but on two blocks on Melrose, and one of them was like an outlet, but still. There must – well, because they did – and I'll talk about this in a second, but they did massive amounts of licensing. So there was like – there was everything from like cars to sunglasses. It was on literally anything that had a surface. So it's very likely that there was a women's store, a men's store, a low-fashion – a higher – higher end store, a, something for, you know, knickknacks. I bet that there, it was just almost like, you know, insane. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you go like Mark Jacobs had like multiple stores in like one area. And so mm-hmm. if, if you like, mm-hmm. Ed Hardy, you go to that one kind of area and you're able to shop all these different, I mean, I'm not sure. I just, that that's the only thing that would make sense to me where they're like, oh, there's the t-shirt place. Oh, there's the outlet. Oh, there's the, there's the that's denim, so the denim bars, this store, you know? Yeah. I could see that. It was so absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, so, you know, um, uh, Audige licensed Ed Hardy, who is a famous tattoo artist, licensed his name and his tattoos for this this new brand. Um, and learning from the Spears Timberlake episode and embracing one of the first forms of influencer marketing, he sent out clothes to all the stars and used the paparazzi hotel and restaurant staff to spread the word. And it just hit like wildfire. Like he knew the mechanics of it and he just, you know, took advantage of it and it absolutely worked. It was like a formula that was just set to, to create uh, a mega brand. Um, which puts him, you know, he's a designer, but a marketer, you know, which doesn't always mm-hmm. happen. Um, so interestingly, 70% of the Ed Hardy line was actually made in Los Angeles. So he could guarantee mm-hmm. quality for the price and lower production time if something actually sold out. So, you know, t-shirts were running at $180. Jeez, God. Which is a designer price point at that time. Like you could go into Dior yeah. and that was a Dior t-shirt price, you know? 
Um, so it was a status brand as well. So celebrity status price. It was just, it was, it was so many different things. So Ed Hardy, the man was a student of Sailor Jerry, the Honolulu based tattoo mm. artist known for synthesizing classic American imagery with the larger scale, finer detail and greater complexity of Japanese tattooing. He is one of the most important and influential tattoo artists at that time. Um, and might I also add that in the early aughts, we were going through a serious tattoo renaissance. Mm-hmm. And this was actually kind mm-hmm. of hard to find information on. But I did find this statistic that in the 1960s, there were 500 professional tattoo artists in the U.S. By 1995, there were 10,000 of them and growing. So... Massive blow up. Um, And in the beginning of the 21st century, uh, we saw lower back tattoos increase in popularity. So the so-called tramp stamp became one of the most fashionable places for women to get tattoos. (laughs) Other trends, (laughs) butterflies and yin-yang symbols also gained traction for the mainstream. Hipsters got tattoos in obvious spots like arms, and it actually became kind of a socially acceptable thing and more acceptable, you know, as you got into more hipster culture and like, you know, art, Art artist jobs and coffee shop culture and all those things to have tattoos. Full sleeves really started to trend. Um, tattoos had that element of blue collar fascination, rock and roll renaissance, and throw caution to the wind attitude that was crushing down. So it made sense that t- tattoos and tattoo culture was so popular. Um, celebrities like Rihanna and Britney were showcasing them in the tabloids. So tattoos just became cool and um mix that in with bling and rhinestones that were in high demand as you got that re- reaction against 90s grunge minimal- minimalism and anti-fashion as well as logo mania you've got this like maximal you know blinged out 180 dollar tattoo tee that just was insanely popular going back to the tattoos amanda did you get a tattoo during this time period? I mean, I have a lot of tattoos. And yes, I think I'm saving this story, but I'm going to say my biggest tattoo mm-hmm. was bought, which covers my entire back, was uh, bought uh, after selling a ton of American apparel clothing. We'll just okay. leave it at that. Okay. But uh, Amazing. I, I always wondered about, you know, like in Portland, tattoos were massive in the early aughts and they continued to be. Um and I just assumed it was a Portland thing. So it was surprising to me when I saw all this Ed Hardy tattoo-inspired stuff out there because I think then I realized that a lot of people think of tattoos as an L.A. thing. Yeah. You know, but I just thought of it – I think the Portland style was a lot different. Yeah. It was a lot cuter, you know, more vintage yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, gosh, everybody I worked with at Urban Outfitters, like you'd get a new employee. They'd come in. You know, this is at the home office. <laughs> they would have come in, in from, say, America. Yeah. In Philly, they would come in. Maybe they worked at American Eagle before. They'd come from Pittsburgh or something. No tattoos, right? Three months later, full sleeves, yeah. and you'd be like, "How'd that happen so fast?" Yeah. It was like <laughs> it was it was just part of the trend. And I mean, it was. Yeah. I mean, I lived in Williamsburg, and you know, pretty much everyone had a tattoo, and that's. I mean, that just kind of went with it, but it wasn't. I mean, obviously, like these kind of cool vintage, you know, um, 
um, Sailor Jerry kind of tattoos were really popular because they were authentic. Mm -hmm. And there was this like this um, this authenticity that hipsters were constantly striving for. Um, So that's why like tramp stamps were not authentic. So hipsters wouldn't get tramp stamps. They would get a Sailor Jerry type tattoo or right, or right. or something new ironic or something music or you know something like that so uh it was different types of tattoos that were that that had different trends um but you know the, this and affliction and a lot of that that tattoo culture really just blew up during this time i know i know i mean it's like i feel like overall tattoos and the quality of them improved in the aughts over what people were getting in the 90s. But then you've got all this Ed Hardy stuff and you're like, I don't even know anymore. Yeah, I don't know what this is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and a lot of people, they would not everyone would get a tattoo, but they could wear this tattoo and they could, they could have that affiliation of this mm-hmm. this type of like rock and roll kind of grungy tattoo cult, subculture, but not actually have to have the tattoo. So they like that, that right. was one of the other things. You know, you can go to Vegas and wear your Ed Hardy t-shirt. Um, and look, <laughs> yeah, of course, look the part, of course. but not have to walk away with the tattoo. So by <laughs> 2009, the brand was pulling in. This is like an unfathomable number, Amanda. $700 million. Stop. What? Yeah. Do you remember oh, seeing them my. at the wholesale, the trade shows like Magic in, in, in Vegas? Yeah. Their booths yeah. were the biggest the loudest and they literally took up like half the show with millions of their licenses and this is what i was saying about potentially you know that's what a lot of those different locations where they were probably different licensed locations they had the tallest booths so you could literally see them from every point in the trade show i mean you avoided that area because that area generally it was all it was obviously the ed hardy brands and, 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 but it was also the like kind of like you know spinoffs of those brands. You just kind of avoided that area altogether. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they had cars. It was insane. I mean, well, they. It was like a brief window, but during that window, man. I mean, they were like printing their own money. Absolutely. Um, but this was actually really funny to learn is how the brand kind of fell from from fame so reality tv was actually what took the brand down dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so rumor has it that the affiliation with john gosling who was part of john and kate plus eight Stop. was actually part no of the device. way uh-huh. he loved wow. ed hardy and there was a point when TLC even started blurring out the Ed Hardy logos because they were <laughs> sick of giving them free publicity. But it wasn't even that – it wasn't good publicity because what happened is John and Kate went through a very public divorce that actually featured her raising the kids while he went out and partied. Wearing – And he, wearing, he had that haircut. She had that haircut, yes, which is now like the Karen <laughs> haircut. Um, so that haircut was – really extreme um so he would go out and party wearing ed hardy and you know the paparazzi followed them everywhere shooting him in his very favorite fashion and by 2011 john was actually considered the most hated man alive what yes stop yes (laughs) oh my gosh the tabloids called him the most hated man alive so it's not exactly great for brand image um 
you know, and obviously he would partner it with some really, you know, unfortunate other products like, you know, true religion jeans and just mm. the gaudiest, tackiest, you know, you know, man fashion back in the day. And I also want to note that the cast of the Jersey Shore was basically based in Ed Hardy as well. And that <laughs> further destroyed their reputation as being basically a quote unquote bridge and tunnel and just really trashy. Ah, oh, man. Venues went so far as to ban the brands with dress code <gasps> signs that read, if it's on the Jersey Shore, it's not coming through the door. Whoa. Yes, because that aligned with not just bad taste. I mean, taste is a subjective term, obviously, but not just bad taste, but just um, people that got into fights. You know, it was like a macho, that macho, um, uneventful, hard partying um, fight, like wanting to pick fights was yeah, you know, people it, didn't want it. It's true. It's so funny. I mean, it just – it became the uniform of a really specific subculture of people that – <laughs> behaved very poorly. I yes, mean. exactly. <laughs> and now I would be remiss to mention that this was also the era of the affliction tea craze. Uh, that was also a fan favorite of John and the Jersey Shore boys. <laughs> so it was slightly different because it was this kind of cyber goth movement. <laughs> Which is super gross. And it was when, you know, like Chris Angel was really big. Oh, my God. I mean, like, I I feel like Chris Angel is wearing one right now. Yeah, I mean, with that haircut, which is kind of like Kate's haircut, but in a goth that way. Um, <laughs> and it was, believe me, this is when I was really, really in my moment of looking at pictures and in hysterics with, like, tears. I mean, I... <laughs> There, a lot. I haven't been to Vegas in a while. Yes. Like, because, you know, there's no trade shows or whatever. But forever, there has been on one of the casinos where his show is. Oh, yeah, a like three story photograph of him, and he looks like it's 2005. That's at like he has not, not the changed. Luxor. Oh, uh, it's the yeah, it's at the Luxor because yes. there's also a statue of him floating there. Because I stayed at the Luxor for these trade shows. Dude, that is so – like, he he's really picking his style and sticking with it. And you know what? Respect. I respect him. I really do feel like you we know? should talk about the trends in magi ma magicians because <laughs> it's so amazing to watch the progression of how these different magicians come about and how they are, you know. Anyway. But this is, you know, obviously this is the time of Chris Angel and it was, you know, this very kind of gothic where it was big and, and it was really acceptable in some circles for men to have a t-shirt with rhinestone and angel wings printed on yeah. them. As well as like the, the leather and silver jewelry. Do you remember this? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, this, what a time. Well, it came out, and this it was kind of hard to find a lot of information about Affliction, but they came, and they're still around, by the way. You can still buy their stuff. They came out of California in 2005, and they rode on the Ed Hardy train, like that tattoo subculture, but it's slightly different. Mm -hmm. It was like Ed Hardy on crack, essentially. Um, and they originally tat targeted the tattoo and rock and roll demographics, but then they started to align and become extremely popular amongst MMA fighters. 
this it makes sense to me. Yeah, it all adds it up. Does. It does. Yeah. Yes, it adds up. At one point, they were actually promoting and sponsoring fights. And so wow. it was not just the fighters, but it was the people that, you know, loved MMA fighters, you know, were wearing this. So it was definitely attracting uh-huh. a very specific subculture of like this is that like that what we were talking about with the Jersey Shore. It was, but it was like, you know. This could, this isn't just the shore, you know, this is everywhere. So Wikipedia explains its quote unquote live fast motto represents and appeals to audiences who appreciate a variety of disciplines in the areas such as rock and roll, moto culture, tattoo, vintage Americana, mixed martial arts, and impact sports. <laughs> so these wow. guys were also doing a hundred million dollars a year in their prime. Wow! I, I that, know like, I, we couldn't even break a hundred million dollars a year at Nasty. Gal. I know, and this was just that's how massive sure. these were. Yeah. Uh, wow! Yeah. I mean, the demand was extremely high, and it really, when you wore this type of clothing, it just it aligned you with this this culture like i said it was like a conspicuous consumption kind of thing you know yeah yeah and i tried doing research to understand the brand more um and there's very little out there um there are though entire blog posts and subreddits that speak to asking the age-old question of why are all men who were who wear affliction douchebags <laughs> there's a lot I mean, of it like- he also fedoras. And, and, <laughs> totally. and I think my, you know, my explanation of, you know, the audiences um, that kind of explains it and therefore is implied. Um, so Amanda, there is a subreddit. It's called ask women where a guy asks a bunch of women is affliction a turnoff. That's and he got a huge earful from women. I am sure. (laughs) And he even went back and amended his his question to add, and I quote: "After seeing all the replies tonight, I'm very hurt and sad. I had no idea this was the the actual general opinion of women. It's a very emotional night for me because of the responses." (laughs) Stop it. But thank you for being truthful with me. And there are some great responses. I really like this one that this woman says. So she says, my brother used to wear solely Ed Hardy, trashy, flashy, true religion jeans, affliction. And he would complain nonstop about the type of women he that who were interested in him. And I told him one day. If you're going to wear Ed Hardy, you're going to attract women who like Ed Hardy. <laughs> True. True words have never been spoken. And as this woman mentioned, these paired really great with some bedazzled True Religion boot cuts for that real ultimate maximal experience. You know, this was maximal bling, you know, like these brands carry cachet as in conspicuous consumption for the rock and roll type. But it was like kind of a weird rock and roll type. It wasn't like you know, the strokes rock and roll type. It was like this right. kind of like uh, Harley Davidson, Vi- Las Vegas um, thing, you know, and the tees and jeans were expensive for the time. 
Um, but this is certainly different than bling in the form of rhinestone encrusted sunglasses and cell phones um, that actually became extremely popular and were the original 2000s bling. So moving slightly off center to this rhinestone circus, I call it um, bling bling or quote bling for short was <laughs> mostly in form, the form of ostentatious jewelry that was popular amongst the hip hop artists of the nineties, you know, Puff Daddy, Biggie Smalls, Tupac, they all referenced and wore some real jewels by the aughts, jewels and rhinestones, particularly Swarovski crystals were everywhere and were on everything. Swarovski has been around for over 120 years and specializes in glass rhinestones. They are the only company that is non-precious that has been able to align their brand as a luxury company, and they are considered high quality for the glass rhinestone market, using chemistry and cut to achieve incredible sparkle. So before the aughts, they provided a lot of fashionable costume jewelry, which was actually you know, fashionable, you know, in the 50s, 60s, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Swarovski uh, had partnered with some designers like Armani for couture dresses and things, you know, because, you know, you can't just wear a, a a gown covered in diamonds, you know? <laughs> you need an alternative source. So right, they right. were the brand name that you could go to where it, even though it wasn't necessarily diamonds, it was considered quality and couture. Right. Um, but we really have the late, great Alexander McQueen to thank for the explosion in the luxury market in the aughts. So in 1999, um, Swarovski partnered with McQueen for his spring-summer uh, 1999 collection. It was super gaudy and obnoxious with thousands and thousands of Swarovski crystals. So we're talking headdresses and ex exposed nipples. This was, you know... <laughs> <laughs> this was 2000s at its best. So it brought Swarovski to the attention of the Hollywood and New York set. Here were affordable but wildly ostentatious gems that were somehow approved by the fashion cool kids. So for the first time in centuries, it was cool to wear what was in effect costume jewelry. And they partnered with uh, endless cool and luxury brands over the years, including Bentley. Um, even major designers jumped into the rhinestone circus, Chanel, Louboutin, Louis, Louis Vuitton, even Ray-Ban. Um, so this spent, spun off into a rhinestone trend that basically coated every flat surface or not so flat surface, cell phones, t-shirts, jeans, sunglasses, Faces, you know, you could wear it on your face. Swarovski has worked with Victoria's Secret in their fashion shows for 15 years. Even in 2018, Victoria's Secret model Elsa Hosk wore a fantasy bra featuring over $1 million worth of Swarovski crystals. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So did you guys have a lot of rhinestone things at Urban? Not a ton. It's interesting. I keep thinking about this, like the things that we picked up versus what we didn't pick up. You know what I mean? Like, why did we have Von Dutch hats, but not yeah. Swarovski crystals? Like, why did we have diesel jeans, but not true religion? Mm -hmm. Like there's, 
I I don't know who was picking and choosing some of the the brands we chose to adopt, but I mean, I do remember us having a little bit of blingy stuff, and we definitely had gems for your phone and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I feel like a lot of the crystal stuff was still considered like this is what you get at Claire's, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it and you know maybe Urban wasn't necessarily like full on like let's take Paris Hilton's look with Juicy Couture. It was just like there there was some overlap of some hipsters wearing like Von Dutch and stuff, but I didn't know very many hipsters that wore any know. yeah any rhinestones. <laughs> no, no, def- I mean I wouldn't have been caught dead. No. Like, once again, this is another one where I'm like, oh, but I look at Swarovski crystals now and I'm like, oh, it's kind of cute. I like it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So when Kim and I intentionally paired together these fashion trends and brands together with what I'm about to talk about, it's because, well, they're kind of like the chocolate and peanut butter, some might say peanut butter and jelly Mm -hmm. of the aughts. So you're probably wondering what I want to discuss. Well, it's the raunchy, quote, sexy culture of the early aughts. Which I'm super excited to hear about. (laughs) It's funny that I just can't believe how perfectly it all like segues, but the brands and trends that Kim just discussed are like the uniform of the celebrities, the reality stars, and the lifestyle (laughs) of this era. Like just so many tie-ins. Well, I didn't come up with the term raunch culture. This is actually coming from a woman named Ariel Levy. I'm going to talk about her a lot. Um, you know, when you ask, like, what is raunch culture, it's it's multifaceted. It's so many things. It's super sexy dressing. It's girls gone wild, mm-hmm. literally and figuratively. Uh, if you missed the girls gone wild phenomenon, it was like, a camera crew would go around and get girls to flash their boobs. Can you think of yeah. a better summary? It's like it's yeah. like spring break sexual revolution part, you know, <laughs> part two, but in like a really like dirty, dirty way. Yeah. And there would be like commercials on television to buy the DVDs, like in sets. I remember that they would like, you know, they would get a lot of girls like drunk or they were like, you know, buy them mm-hmm. shots and things. And yeah, that's kind of yeah, how yeah. they got a lot of their footage. Yeah, yeah. So there's that. It's the mainstreamification of porn, which we're going to talk about. It's the man show oh, with the juggies that were. Can you even believe that was allowed? Oh, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe. I, I just can't. It was cable. Remember? <laughs> um, it's the rise of the chain of hustler stores and literally wearing hustler t shirts. Uh-huh. It's Maxim Magazine. Mm-hmm. It's Hugh Hefner as a kindly but horny grandpa. It's the era of the Brazilian. And when I say that, I mean the wax, not the people. It's a stripper pole in your living room and buying your going out outfit at the sex shop. Yes. This is the culture we're talking about. Yes. Now, before I continue, I want to make something very clear. My criticism of this trend, this social trend, is not out of disrespect for sex workers. Sex work is real work. It is hard work. And sex workers deserve benefits, respect, and, you know, what protection by the law. Sex work is essential work. So this is not about sex workers. It's about this other trend Mm -hmm. that to a certain extent kind of worshipped sex workers. It might be Mm -hmm. the only time – 
where sex workers got mm. the respect that they deserved, but it was a weird. It was like it was like a it was a celebrity. It was like Tara Reid. Yeah, That's what I think about. Yeah, it wasn't like real respect, but it was like some admiration. Mm-hmm. But like, there were a lot of strings attached to it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be citing a book a lot called Female Chauvinist Pigs, Women and the Rise of Raunch Culture by Ariel Levy. As I discuss this trend, I want to say it came out in like 2007. So in the thick of this, there are parts of it where I'm like, okay, you're being a little uptight right now, but I get where she's going. And for me, when I stumbled across this book in the late aughts, it felt like such a relief to me because for a long time I had felt that if I wanted to be cool, modern, feminist, someone that guys would want to hang out with, then I would have to be down with literally going on dates to strip clubs, getting into random threesomes after the bar, watching porn just very casually like at a party and just generally being as sexy and liberated as possible at all times. And it was a suffocating feeling that I felt put me in uncomfortable situations all the time. Wow. I mean, this was like – it's interesting because what we're going to talk about here is overall like a much flashier version of it. But this – there was a thread of this going through Portland and through the hipster scene where it would be like, hey, we're out on a date. Let's go to a strip club. Like why? Why would we really? do that? Wow. Yeah. it was, And I think Portland has always been – per capita, like has the most strip clubs in the country or something like that. So it is a part of the culture there. But I just remember moving to Portland in the early aughts and everybody was like, I'm polyamorous and I'm really into sexual experimentation. And there were a lot of swingers clubs around town for people of all ages. And it was just like a really very sexy place. Mm -hmm. It was really, really weird. And, but I think it was related to what was going on here socially. I worried all the time that my love of a good full coverage panty was going to make (laughs) me seem like a prude because, you know, really I should be wearing a bedazzled thong and I certainly wasn't going to get waxed. And I, as I was working on this, I was trying to think like, how did this culture develop? How did this become a trend? And I think, and this is just pure speculation, we saw a lot more sex positivity in the 90s, which was great because it's what we needed culturally. Wait, when was Madonna's sex book? Uh, like oh, no, the, and there was like the sex, there was the video yeah. too. I remember, I remember that being played at parties and that was kind of like a cool thing to play. Yeah. And, and to have sex book. Um, it looks like it was 1992. So that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think that in the 90s, we started to see sex come to the forefront and really talking about like, you know, being open about your sexuality, you know, expressing your fantasies, living your fantasies, you know, also practicing safe sex, talking mm-hmm. frankly about sex so that people would feel empowered to practice safe sex. I mean, so there was the sex positivity kind of everywhere. But then somehow it went through some weird funnel around 2002 and it got real weird, which is what we're going to talk about. Mm. So I was I was noticing all this going on around me. So was Ariel Levy, the, the writer of the book I'm talking about. And she was saying how like her most hardcore politically radical, like super feminist friends were hanging out at strip clubs regularly. Everybody was switching to thong underwear, hustler, playboy, and porn star shirts walked down the street. And as a side note, I was telling 
Kim, before we started recording, that I was like, oh, yeah, that brand Porn Star, literally shirts that said Porn Star on them. What yeah. happened to them? They have like totally disappeared. Their website just takes you to a broken link. I tried to track them down all over the place. They don't even have a Wikipedia article. Um, I mean, how many moms probably nearly had a nervous oh, breakdown I'm seeing sure. their daughters I'm wearing? Sure. Uh, I did find a few people on Reddit reminiscing about it and wondering what happened. And I also found this person asking on Yahoo questions more than a decade ago. So when it was more relevant, they were asking where they could find porn star and hustler tees to give us Christmas gifts. Oh. <laughs> anyway. Oh, God. On the receiving end of that, like you only imagine who's getting this. <laughs> so Levi is noticing this. So she asked around and she got this answer, quote, this new raunch culture didn't mark the death of feminism, they told me. It was evidence that the feminist project had already been achieved. We'd earned the right to look at oh, Playboy. I know. I know. This God. is like so preposterous. We were empowered enough to get Brazilian bikini waxes. Women had come so far, I learned. We no longer needed to worry about objectification or misogyny. Instead, it was time for us to join the frat party of pop culture where men had been enjoying themselves all along. If male chauvinist pigs were men who regarded women as pieces of meat, we would outdo them and be female chauvinist pigs, women who make sex objects of other women and of ourselves. God, that is fascinating. It is fascinating. And that really nails it. Like, mm -hmm. it was it was like – it was almost like we'd all said, okay, everyone's going to objectify women and make them feel like crap as uh -huh. sex objects, but we're going to pretend it's feminism. I mean, this is so girl boss at its core, right? Yeah. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what we did. Like, I'm not, when I use we, I'm using the all we, the greater we, not necessarily me and Kim. No. Women, <laughs> women worked on the man show. They were probably helping the juggies work on their routines. They worked as editors, photographers, and writers at the lad magazines like Maximum and FHM, which were basically just softcore magazines for boys. They were part of perpetuating this culture, this raunch culture, as much as the men were. And in mm -hmm. fact, I would argue, especially if you – like thinking about that quote that I just shared – that women were really the force behind the rise of this raunch culture. Mm -hmm. when, Absolutely. When Levy asked her friends, specifically women, why they were getting Brazilians and flashing their boobs and going on dates to strip clubs, they all had similar responses. Quote, they wanted to be one of the guys. They hoped to be experienced like a man. Going to strip clubs or talking about porn stars was a way of showing themselves and the men around them that they weren't prissy little women or girly girls. In fact, like the sneak, now I'm not quoting anymore. I would say that this is also the rise of that like cool girl stereotype, which I hate. The girl that is too cool to hang out with other women, the girl that isn't like the other girls, the girls who's yeah. like, I just don't get along with girls. They just don't like me, like that kind of stuff. I doesn't care what other people think. Yes, yes. But it's all just like – when we talk about perhaps the biggest undoing of hashtag girl boss is that she is trying to assume the male leadership role but be like, I'm cute doing it. I feel like this mm -hmm. is the same thing. We're not mm -hmm. fighting for women's sexual liberation here. We're saying I'm going to be just like men. I'm going to objectify <laughs> women too and mm -hmm. myself. It's just it's, – it's doomed from day one. 
And dudes must have been just like stoked. Oh my god, they must you know, have been. finally they could like you know look at boobs all the time <laughs> and girls, you know, like boobs and butts, and everyone was getting waxes, and they they could go to the they could they could take girls on a date Dude. to a strip club. <laughs> I remember one of my friends making me feel like a skank because I'd gone on a date to a strip club and then had sex with the guy <laughs> afterwards, and I'm like, well. What do you want from me? You know, like this is where we're going on the date. You know, like, I, I don't know what was I supposed to do. Um, you know, anyway, some sort of some sort of like hipster foreplay. I I I don't even know. I wasn't even thinking of it that way. I remember being at the strip club and being like, "Oh my god, I'm so bored. I wish I was more drunk. The drinks are really expensive. Like, like." I only went home with that guy because I actually really liked him. It was very divorced in my mind from the strip club. Hard to stay with him, you know? When I see other women objectifying other women like this time, of mm-hmm. still pushing this agenda of like super thin, perfect young bodies, yes. it doesn't feel very feminist to me. In fact, it's like the opposite of empowering. Yeah, it was like exactly. we were – we were all giving up all of our own power and tearing it away from one another at the same time. It's like you're saying men must have been loving this, right? Yeah. <laughs> Levy puts it a lot more eloquently than me. She says, quote, how is resurrecting every stereotype of female sexuality that feminism endeavored to banish good for women? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I would agree. Like how mm-hmm. – I, I remember this being like, this is like a girl power situation and it wasn't. But this time, it's just uh, – 2001 was the first ever televised Victoria's Secret fashion show. And oh, reality wow. TV was finding great success with what Levy calls the, quote, harem-themed reality shows. Oh, being yes. a bunch of women competing for the attention of a man, The Bachelor, for yes. example. There was also Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire, Joe Millionaire, was which was about a guy – who pretended to be a millionaire, but it was actually working class or something like that. Maybe it was the inverse. I'm not sure. And a few other special harem-themed reality shows that I'm going to talk about in a moment. Furthermore, between 1992 and 2004, the number of breast augmentation surgeries in the U.S. went from just over 32,000 a year in 1992 to more than 260,000 per year in 2004. The concept of, I hope your dad's not listening. The concept of vaginoplasty and vaginal rejuvenation surgeries went mainstream. Like they were (laughs) in your regular old newspaper. Your dad's probably Mm. seen an ad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this was something that people would talk (laughs) about. Like suddenly we had to rejuvenate our vaginas. <laughs> like so yeah. crazy. The off- What is that even? I don't even I, know what that it is. It sounds what? horrible. I just – I think it's kind of a scam anyway, so don't do it. The odds were off. Also- you heard it here. This is this is our this is our anti-commercial. <laughs> don't do don't it. Don't do it. This is our PSA. Just say no. <laughs> the odds were also the era of strippers, of aspiring to be a stripper, of taking pole dancing classes, of installing a pole in your living room just for fun. I know Paris Hilton had one. Even the Washington Post, which you know we think of as you know. Not very radical, right? They wrote an article about the phenomenon of stripping that declared, quote, with stripper chic, as with so many advances in pop culture, the nation owes a great debt to Los Angeles. Ew. 
And I just touches on what I said in the last episode that so many elements of mainstream arts culture were attributed to LA and the LA Mm -hmm. lifestyle, perhaps not incorrectly at that point. And I still think a lot of people think that's what LA is like. LA is actually this wildly diverse city of many kinds of people and cultures. And this is just like what was happening over on the West side or something, you know, there was just more paparazzi here at that time, you know, like there, there's all the celebrities, all the things that you saw coming out of LA was just, you know, just tons and tons of celebrity stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it was, and it like, when you were talking about the brands, I'm like, oh shit, they were mm-hmm. all from LA and like the celebrity taunts were from LA. All the reality mm-hmm. shows were filming mm-hmm. in LA. You know, like you keep going, going on. Perez Hilton, he's sitting in the coffee bean and tea leaf, you know, in LA. And so Mm -hmm. I see how that happens. I mean, I remember getting my mind blown because, you know, I lived in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, of course, another just, you know, huge subculture, you know, uh, you know, like one of the the founding eras of that like hipster land or whatever. And, you know, we would go out to Vegas and LA, but oftentimes Vegas for trade shows and just the you'd see the people from LA and you would know that they were from LA yeah. and they, your mind would be blown the hair like the hair on the men the true religion genes the Ed Hardy it was just it was so popular but then you go back to New York and it was just completely different yeah no it's like, true it's true just did not wear that every time I would go to LA for work it, I it was like I was in another country it was mm-hmm. just so different and it's like where I would see the stuff I saw in gossip rags in real life, but you weren't seeing that on the East Coast. You saw it a t- like tiny bit in Portland, but like not even really. It was just people trying to do it while also still wearing outdoor clothing. Like it just – it wasn't quite working. <laughs> One industry that really benefited from this raunch era was porn. People were still relying on DVDs and magazines for most of this decade because, you know, streaming technology wasn't really where it was. But by 2010, streaming porn would take over and totally change the industry forever. But at this point, you still had to actively, for the most part, go out and buy porn. The odds made celebrities out of porn stars and brands. For example, Jenna Jameson, the world's highest grossing adult film star at that time, wrote a memoir, which I remember seeing all over the gossip rags, called How to Make Love Like a Porn Star, which was on the bestseller list for six weeks in 2004. This is not something that could have happened even in 1994 just would not have happened, right? Jameson's publisher, Judith Reagan, said in 2005, quote, I believe that there is a pornoization of the culture. Uh Truer words have never been spoken. And it made sense because Olympic athletes were posing nude or damn near close for Playboy, Penthouse, Hustler, Maxim. In the past, this would have ended their careers, especially their careers as athletes. Now it just made them household names. Also from uh, Levy's book, quote, as former adult film star Tracy Lords put it to a reporter for a few days before her memoir hit the bestseller list in 2003, when I was in porn, it was like a back alley thing. Now it's everywhere. Spectacles of naked ladies have moved from seedy side streets to center stage where everyone, men and women, can watch them in broad daylight. Playboy and its ilk are being embraced by young women in a curious way in a post-feminist world. To borrow the words of Hugh Hefner, 
And mm-hmm. speaking of Hugh Hefner, his reality show, yes. The Girls Next Door, which was about his relationship with his three girlfriends, Holly Madison, Bridget Marquardt, and Kendra Wilkinson. This show somehow managed to be on the air for six seasons on E! Unbelievable. And it spawned four spinoffs. Kendra, <laughs> Kendra on top. <laughs> Bridget's sexiest. What's the difference? I, I don't know. Bridget's sexiest beaches oh and Holly's God. world. I remember that. Yeah. The show was filmed in the famous Playboy Mansion, which is like, I would love to see just a tour of the Playboy Mansion. Now, that sounds fun to me. I'm sure mm-hmm. it's an incredible mid century marvel. But the show itself was just pretty boring. I saw a few episodes of it here and there, and the girls are all very nice. They're very sexy in that early aughts way with like bleached blonde hair. They're super tan. They're really skinny. They have big boobs. What we think of as LA at that time. Yeah. Uh-huh. But Hugh Hefter just seemed like a doddering, childish old man who would throw temper tantrums when he didn't get it his own way. Like Ozzy. Yeah, like Ozzy. You're right. Think, You're right. I think people like that, you know, that they like to see that their their stars are real, you know? And I think that, that he seemed real, that he wasn't so threatening, mm-hmm. I think that's how it was successful in making Playboy a more mainstream commodity because he no longer was just like some sinister pornographer who would come and turn your sisters and mm-hmm. girlfriends into centerfolds. It certainly made Playboy a brand with mass appeal, leading to all kinds of apparel and licensed merchandise. All of it. Sometimes even dazzled that. also with Swarovski. I remember like, like I remember Swarovski. I remember Ringer Tees. It was, it was everywhere. It was, it was everywhere. This was also when Hustler, which I always thought of the, as the more lowbrow competitor to Playboy – also mm-hmm. became a popular brand selling lingerie, t-shirts, dildos of all varieties. I'm sorry, Mr. Christensen. And much, much <laughs> more out of its chain of stores. You know, as you know, I like to go down some really weird rabbit holes when I'm researching for the department. And I found a really funny 2004 article from the South Florida Sun Sentinel with the headline, Hustler store is nothing to get excited about. And it was essentially <laughs> chastising all the people who were upset about the opening of a new Hustler boutique in their town. Mm. The reporter said, quote, many products will cause discomfort for the prudish, especially in the 18 and over section, because that's important to point out anyone can go in the Hustler store. There's just an 18 and over section in there. Mm. It's walled off and guarded by a friendly sales clerk wearing a shirt that says, Relax, it's only sex. But on the whole, except for the branding and the garish neon that was guaranteed to cause a ruckus on the edge of Oso Tony Victoria Park, this place seems no worse than scores of other stores, legitimate and lowbrow throughout South Florida. Uh-huh. Uh, we're not an adult store, Jimmy Flint, Larry's brother said. We're a specialty retail outlet. Oh, gosh. Uh, no reality show. Even the pickup artist captured the essence of Raj culture more than my personal favorite, VH1's Rock of Love, (laughs) which I am not ashamed to say that I love. In fact, our mutual love of this show is something that brought Dustin and I even closer during the early days of our relationship. And a few years ago, when I was really sick with mono, we watched the whole thing again. So have you watched Rock of Love, Kim? Never. Uh, 
I know nothing about it except for what you've mentioned. I, after working on the last episode and this one, I realized that like VH1 had, I mean, I mentioned this in the last episode, basically became just a reality television channel, right? Mm -hmm. In the aughts. And most of these shows that were on VH1 were all created by one production company. And so they were all super linked together. Um, Rock of Love starred Poison's Brett Michael. You a big Poison fan, Kim? Interesting. <laughs> Such a big – how did you But know? he would have been like – I mean, not like elderly or anything at this point, but I would expect he was probably like maybe in his 40s, you know, because mm. he would have been big in the 80s. You do the math there. I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Um, it was – the show was created after producers saw the success of Flavor of Love – which starred Flava Flav of Public Enemy. Now, oh. as I mentioned in the last episode, a lot of these reality shows would begat other reality shows. And so Flava Flav first appeared on The Surreal Life, where he began an allegedly real relationship with model Bridget Nielsen. Now, like I said, supposedly this relationship was real. Mm-hmm. It was also doomed. <laughs> and... <laughs> I, I don't know what to believe because reality television has always been filled with trickery, but at this era, it was especially yes. tricky and fake. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they, they said it was reality, but oftentimes there was plot lines that were just developed and there was writers for for the, the, the reality. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't real. Exactly, exactly. So they – so Flava Flav and Bridget Nielsen got a spinoff of this real life called Strange Love, which was about their relationship, and they broke up in it. And so then this led to Flavor of Love, where the spurned Flava Flav would maybe finally find true love. So Rock of Love and Flavor of Love followed the same model, not unlike The Bachelor, but far mm. more chaotic, I guess. Um, It was that harem theme that we've talked about already. Uh So the female contestants would compete each week for the love of the male lead while also taking part in various challenges to earn one-on-one dates and other rewards. Like, for example, every season of Rock of Love, there would be a muddy touch football game (laughs) in which the girls were wearing tiny crop tops that barely covered their boobs and and super tiny shorts, and they would play – football in the mud and then whoever won got to go on a date. It was abs- this kind of absurdness. Wait, yes. Amanda, how many seasons was this? I believe three. Three. So so he never found his love <laughs> in the first Sadly, season, the second season. Neither did Flava Flav. And they I think he also had three seasons. They would do all these challenges and then they would go on dates and they'd have other rewards and stuff too. And then each week, one or two contestants would be eliminated in a just like wrenching ceremony. I heard, I've, I'm going to get to this, but just wrenching. I uh, was, I've been listening to this podcast about Rocket Love. I started this week because once again, it's like really hard to find information about any of this era. And they were saying that like often, the girls would be drinking all day. They'd have all these challenges, all these other things. Midnight would roll around and they'd say, okay, everyone's like wasted. Put on your gowns, do your hair. We're going to do the elimination ceremony. So they'd be doing that until like three or four in the morning. Oh. Everybody was like blackout drunk. And so I must like want to rewatch it. <laughs> um, yeah. So I remember on 
you got to see, see it. it, right? So I remember on Rock of Love that Brett would give the contestants who were staying a backstage pass with their picture on it. And he'd like put it over their head around their neck. And he would say, will you stay and rock my world? <laughs> oh, to every single one God. of them. And he would kiss them. It was gross. He was like a big open mouth wet kisser. It was disgusting. <gasps> oh, my so, God. I, I feel like I need to watch this. I think you need to. And I was telling Dustin today that my feeling at awe on it all is like, I guess Brett Michaels is supposed to be what lures you in, but I actually was there for the for the women because they were all like really interesting and he was just kind of gross and like I said, a wet mouth kisser. <laughs> and he just was <laughs> cheesy. He would just say cheesy stuff all the time. You could tell he was like acting. Yeah, because there was like a writer, the staff writer. Yeah, writer. <laughs> yeah. It's just so cheesy. So – this both shows, Flavor, Flavor of Love and Rock of Love, were filled with stripper poles, lingerie mm-hmm. worn as daywear, uh, women fighting for no particular reason, tops falling off, people falling in pools, wow. and lots wow. and lots of booze. So, Lacey's Skulls was one of the celebrities to come out of Rock of Love. Like all of these shows, I think I mentioned this on the last episode, they would create these celebrities who just went from show to show. Lacey Skulls was one of them. She reappeared in subsequent seasons, and she was also on the spinoff Rock of Love Charm School. So they're like characters. So they develop they their characters. And, and then if you really like this character, you follow them on these different programs. Yes. So she was a villain oh, yes. on the show, and um, she hosts this podcast that is I'm listening to. She cites New York, who was one of the contestants on Flavor of Love, as her role model for getting into her role on Rock of Love. New York actually went on to have her own reality show called I Love New York. So this wasn't like a bad strategy. Mm. And so Lacey will tell you she got there. She could tell right away that it was like a put on. She even asked Brett when they were alone in a car, like, are you really looking for love? Doesn't make any sense that you, a guy who's like super rich and famous to a certain extent would be looking for love on a TV show. And he kind of Uh admitted no. And so that let her really go – full throttle with this character that she was developing and it was it worked amazing it worked because you know what she got brought back for every season in one way or another she got to be on other shows can i ask what did she do that made her a villain she was just she would be she would start fights she was was like ruthless she was ruthless she was very entertaining i felt it's not like she's a real actress. I could tell that she was acting and that made it even more entertaining to me. And I really loved her because she was really into animal rights. There's a legendary episode where she pushes someone in the pool because they talked about a dog in a mean way, like a dog abuse mm-hmm. or something. Uh, and she was in the roller derby, which is another aughts thing mm-hmm. for sure, right? Yes, it was. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, she even – they had – I think I want to say it was in season two because she was in season one. In season two, they had a challenge that was roller derby themed and she came and was beating the crap out of all the girls. It was incredible. <gasps> awesome. Uh, she said, quote, when we weren't doing challenges or we weren't on a date with Brett, there was so much downtime. I remember I brought a bunch of magazines and books and the producer was like, no, you can't have those because they don't want to film you reading a magazine or reading a book. And – contestants also weren't allowed to bring phones, computers, really anything that would connect them to the outside world or keep them from interacting with other contestants. They were essentially locked in this house for 30 days. So guess what they did? They just drank a ton of booze. They hung out by the pool. They chit-chatted. And all of this would lead to drama. 
there were multiple stripper poles in the Rock of Love house, and someone was always dancing on one. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone was drunk, too. Everyone was super drunk. Lacey called it, quote, a frat house that you never got to leave, which sounds terrifying to me. On Flavor of Love, someone got so drunk in one of the early episodes that they pooped on the floor. (laughs) And they, like, blurred out the poop, but everyone knew (laughs) it yes yes on rock of love contestants were pushing one another into the pool losing their bikini tops like all the time talking Mm. shit about one another and doing a lot of drunk puking side Mm. note dustin and i were listening to this podcast earlier and he pointed out do you think people still drink red bull and vodka i I, I was actually thinking about the Red Bull craze because that's what I, I mean. That's when all the bars even got the mini yeah, fridges of Red yeah. Bull. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, totally. And mm-hmm. it was kind of the official cocktail of the mainstream aughts. And it was there was a lot of Red Bull and vodka drinking yeah. happening on Rock of Love. Brett Michaels himself, and I'm assuming Flavor Flav too, didn't actually stay at the house with the contestants, even though he had a bedroom to make it seem as if they stayed there. The producers would have him enter his bedroom through an external door and then film him coming out of his bedroom into the hallway. And so Mm. he had his own place nearby and they would just call him like, hey, there's some drama happening. Can you come back? And they would whisk him over and he would go in this side door and they'd be like, girls, what's going on? Or, you know, whatever was happening that day. You know, something that would stress me out watching this show is that Brett Michaels is very open that he is diabetic. He has been diabetic his whole life. So I guess that makes it type one, right? He would drink like crazy with the girls. And I know that's not something you're supposed to be doing when you're diabetic. And I had constant anxiety watching the show, worrying about his health. <laughs> really? Like, do you think he was actually drinking alcohol or you think he was just drinking like I don't know he would talk about being hungover a lot and there were days where I was like he does not look good so uh, I will say that right after Rock of Love ended he was working on a new show called like I don't know Brett Michaels this is my life or something and they had to stop filming because he was hospitalized with an aneurysm and some other health issues that were related to diabetes and I can't help but think that this mm-hmm. show was part of it. That's like pure speculation, but it was like Absolutely. hard partying all the time. So as you're you're probably not surprised to hear that neither Flava Flav nor Brett Michaels were looking for love. They were actually both in relationships outside the show. Which really? Is, yeah. And it's kind of I, – I, it's kind of weird as an understatement. It's really – unsettling to me, I guess. must up, yeah. Yeah, because there was a lot of making out, possibly even real sex, and definitely oral sex based on a fight I observed that two contestants had on family day in front of their parents who had come to visit. Whoa. So I – that doesn't sit well with me. Um, One producer said, Honestly, not really. When asked about Michael's interest in the women, he was very good at pretending to be interested, though. The same producer added that for most of the women, Michael's only felt, quote, a physical connection, which, yeah, I I get it. I get what you're saying, bro. Disgusting. 
disgusting. And I mean, the show was just like so sexualized just from trashy. But that's what people wanted. They wanted yeah. it trash. The trashier, the better. But the like, so it was like all the girls were dressing as sexy as possible, like crazy mm-hmm. high heels, you know, dancing on the pole all over him. You know, he's making really cheesy, like, dad double entendres all the time and, like, lusting after all of them. And it's just oh. – it's it's upsetting. It's upsetting to me. There's a podcast, like I mentioned, hosted by Lacey and another woman from the show named Heather called Talk of Love. And I just started listening to it. Overall, I think I like it, but the sound quality is bad, so hopefully that's going to get better. What, so Heather – of Talk of Love is her full name is Heather Chadwell. And she actually, and she's very transparent about this on the podcast. She thought that Brett really was looking for love and that they had a chance because she was like one of the finalists in season one. She literally got Brett's name tattooed on the back of her neck while oh my on God, a serious? yeah, while on a date for the show that was filmed. Later, she had a lot of anger towards him because even though he would say on the show that they were best friends, that they had this special connection, he brought her back season after season. He never spoke to her outside of the show. And she's hurt by it still, which I would be too. I mean, we've all dated asshole dudes like that, right? On the podcast, Heather says this. She says, quote, right after the show ended, we did some events together and we were kind of friends, but I guess it was more work-related. Unless I had a meet and greet for $750, he wasn't going to talk to me. So it was basically all business. So no, we don't have a friendship. That's not how I am. We're not friends because we're totally different people. We just have different ways of treating people and morals and whatever. So yeah, no, we're not friends. Like she Hmm. – is still really hurt by this. She has had the tattoo covered up, thank God. But Dustin and I were talking about this tonight. Like, how messed up is it that the producers let it go that far? That Brett Michaels let it go that far? But that – and that's – that's the that was the challenge with reality TV is, you know – I mean, even with, like, the biggest loser, you know, like, seeing people actually go to the hospital – yeah. Because they're being pushed so hard yeah. and no one's stepping in, you know? No. That that wasn't the point back then, you know? No. I feel like there was just weren't rights for people. People weren't thinking about the ethics of what they were doing. They were just making the shows. There you go. So most exactly. contestants on both Rock of Love and Flavor of Love were adult film stars, strippers, mm-hmm. musicians, aspiring actresses, and models. Brett Michaels the entire time was fully clad in affliction, Ed Hardy, and true religion. On one episode, he and some girls go on a group date to the Ed Hardy store on Melrose to get some custom clothes. Like bedazzled. He's wearing like the most bedazzled shirts in every episode. Obviously, this show is gross and objectifying and – Maybe the thing that I actually hate most about it, because I do love the show, but when I step back and look at how other people might have been looking at it, I think that there's supposed to be a joke in there. Like, you're supposed to watch it ironically, which I do not, and I I don't feel like the contestants are in on that joke. Like, they're drunk, they're being exploited, they were told to pack, you know, like, the sexiest clothes. In fact, like, when you... I mean, because now I've watched the show multiple times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
all these women are very independent. They're hardworking. They're career focused. There's a lot of single mothers. They're actually all way smarter than you. I don't than they're portrayed. I will say. And I think it sort of perpetuated this myth that single mothers are trashy, that sex workers are desperate, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I think that, you know, this also could have perpetuated some like body dysmorphia or a lot of it, mm-hmm. because all we saw during this time period was, you know, bodies that look good naked. Yeah. Or, you know, quote unquote, looked good, you know, yeah. in Everyone was just real thin. You know, Paris oh. Hilton was the ultimate. And I mean, like that that is just pure genes to have a body that looks like that. And and basically just constantly only seeing models, actresses, um, socialites, you know, it's just like I I remember always, you know you know, trying to be on a diet, like no one ever felt comfortable in their own skin because all you saw was the, were these bodies. And yeah. that was popular. When I remember it was like actresses were getting thinner and thinner. Like I remember there was a reboot of 90210 that came out in the mid aughts. And there were many articles about how these actresses were like disturbingly thin, which they were. It was yeah kind of appalling it made it difficult for me to watch it everybody's heads look like they were going to snap mm-hmm. off and i think it was just such a terrible time to be a woman despite all this mm-hmm. like faux liberation going on around us mm-hmm. I, I agree and like i said i i i think that these shows flavor of love and rock of love they sort of set the standard for raunch and drama on reality shows. Like it was like that worked. Let's keep pushing that envelope, you know. And yeah. they were really ro- they really rolled out all about the ratings, all about it, just whatever it takes. Like mm-hmm. to lock someone in a house for thirty days and take away their phone and make them drink the whole time while wearing a bikini is pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, this really rolled out the red carpet for the debut of the Jersey Shore in two thousand nine. Now. I'm not going to talk about that show because it's really more of an Audis product. So we'll have to wait till yep. we get into that decade. But I can see a direct line between Jersey Shore and those raunchy shows. Of course, there were tons of spinoffs of Flavor of Love and Rock of Love. There was I Love New York, Charm School, I Love Money, Megan Wants a Millionaire, Daisy of Love, Real Chance of Love. And these were all, like I said, VH1 shows all produced by a company called 51 Minds Entertainment. VH1 continued to churn out all these raunchy reality shows until because you think, you know, I was this, I actually stumbled upon this kind of by accident. I was like, why did all those shows go away very abruptly? Dustin and I were like, they all seem to just turn off one year and never come back. And we know that no one found love. It's because. <laughs> Of the murder of Jasmine Fiore in 2009. You might remember remember this from the news. Well, she was found stuffed into a suitcase. I mean, incredibly beaten, tortured, all kinds of stuff. And she was only identified by the serial numbers on her breast implants. Oh my God. It turned out that I do not remember this. You don't remember this? It turned out that she had been murdered by her husband, Ryan Jenkins, who was a former contestant on both Megan Wants a Millionaire and I Love Money. Oh my God. Fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know, neither of the seasons he was on had aired yet. And Megan from Megan Wants a Millionaire will tell you that 
she wanted to choose him as the winner, but the producers made her go with another guy at the end. Like he was one of the finalists. Once again, no one's ever seen that season, but she was like, I actually think I was in love with him in real life. He was really charismatic. Although Jenkins was never violent on the sets of these two reality shows and everybody just seemed to love him, both the media and viewers couldn't like unlink his violent act from the reality genre. And when it came out that some other violent behavior from his past had been completely missed by his background check, well, it totally destroyed VH1's relationship with 51 Minds Entertainment. So I Love Money and Megan Wants a Millionaire were immediately canceled, even though they'd been filmed. Planned spinoff shows starring Lacey and Heather of Rock of Love were also canceled, along with a lot of other projects. It was just like, this is it. It's the end. There'll be no more 51 Minds Entertainment shows. And that was the end of that era. I... I have to say, like, I did – this was one thing that I was able to do some reading about and a lot of industry experts are kind of like, you know, before this happened, there were no protocols in place for how to protect people on these shows or to background check or anything really, anyone who was on the show. Like, there just wasn't any firm policy in place, which is – Interesting knowing how many of these shows existed. I guess the deal with this guy is that he was Canadian, so they did his background check in Canada with a different service than they normally used, but the actual charges of violence from like a previous decade happened in the United States, so they never caught it. Mm, okay. uh, you know, but you would wouldn't you ask yourself, like, maybe we better check both countries? I mean, it, it's a mess. It's a mess, right? Yes, exactly. So that was the end of that era of reality television. But I would like to know what you think, Kim. Did the raunch era end? It For me, it feels like it did to a certain extent. Like, high-rise jeans and full-coverage underwear came back into vogue. There was a trend of modest dressing that continues even now. But what do you think? Like, do you think it's over? Do I think it's over? That's really interesting. I think, well, yes, the recession definitely changed a lot of things. And I think we wanted to have an Mm -hmm. episode that we talked about how the recession caused minimalism, the loss of logos, the loss of like all this like affliction and all, you know, all that, that stuff. But when it comes to like, yeah, like the sexuality, people's sexuality, and it definitely has gotten... I think people are more interested in, you know, being open and accepting and maybe, you know, the Me Too movement came in and threatened mm-hmm. a lot of and exposed a lot of crap that was actually happening and abuse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is for sure. I mean, the Me Too movement really, really thrived in this era, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and I was also thinking, you know, You know, we've already debunked a lot of these like millennials kill this, millennials kill that theories that are out there. But one thing that I was seeing over and over again in the past few years is how millennials aren't into having sex anymore or something. You know, they're like more just into like being at home, being on their own. You know, they're more into pornography. And so I do think there might be something to that, that people aren't out there being as overtly sexual IRL anymore. I think there's still an ironic thing, you know, like we have Jumbo's Clown Room out here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which I actually mm-hmm. have never been to, but I know that you, you you know, you, you've been a couple times. Uh, I remember, mm-hmm. I'm my place. I remember yeah. in New York in the, 
yeah, post recession, they're uh, one of the one of the you know cool factions you know, turned a strip club into a cool hipster place, kind of like Jumbo's. Um, but but that that yeah, that whole culture is just. I think people just aren't accepting of it anymore. You know, it went from slutty to you know, buttoned up and cleaned up and, you know, girls are wearing sweatpants, you know, like they're not wearing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the halter. The, the I think the fact that the pendulum could swing back so far just kind of proves how like ingenuine the whole thing was. Like it wasn't yeah. like we are finally giving sex workers the respect they deserve. No, they were still being like, you're a stripper, but <laughs> I want to be sexy like you too or something. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. like – really respecting what these people do or recognizing them as people even. It was just like kind of trying to steal their style, I guess. Mm -hmm, Exactly. I mean, and, you know, because of the gossip rags and all of those things, just getting in front of the camera and having the most said about you was usually wearing the littlest, you know, like that (laughs) – Or it was like the red carpet look, you know, if you had a plunging, you know, neckline or something like really what stood out was, yeah, how, how, how much exposed skin you had. And I think that's a lot different, you know, now it's kind of like, it's, it's about looking really classy and chic, you know, not necessarily. I think so. I think so too. I mean, there still is this like stretch of Hollywood Boulevard from like Vine to Highland that is just filled with stores that are selling like weird lingerie as clothes, I guess. Like, yes. It's always like that's like non- a, that's like a tourist area. So it's like people are coming yeah. down there, and they probably are looking for old LA, and that's what they're yeah. going. Yeah, that's what they're going for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally, totally. I also was thinking that the girl boss or the hashtag girl boss, if you will, was a spinoff of the ranch era. Oh. Like still sexy still totally obsessed with like thinness mm-hmm. under the guise of wellness. Like it was like a rebrand, but now also business focused. Mm. Yes. Now, <laughs> you know? now she's getting to work. Yes. Yes. Let's make a totally. career out of this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I feel like it makes sense as a transition. Like you can see all of the girl bosses, you know, coming of age in this raunch era mm-hmm. and like, being like, okay, well, I'm sort of like that, but I'm also like really wanting to make some money. So let's m- merge the two together. Let's throw a blazer on over over this camisole. <laughs> yeah. The most important thing is that no matter what, we're not actually feminists. <laughs> exactly. No matter what, let's just confuse what feminism is. Yes, that's our number one priority. <laughs> well that concludes today's episode yeah and stay tuned we have a couple more 2000s trends episodes coming up yeah and if you think there's something we've missed or you'd like to hear us cover please reach out to us thank you bye bye